Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Wow. This is very exciting. Uh, Hello, and welcome to tonight's Commonwealth Club event. I'm Pat Thurston. I'm a talk show host. My daughter's right here, by the way, Addie. And I'm your moderator for today's event. This is a very nice crowd. It's good to see this turnout. It is my very distinct pleasure to introduce to you Malcolm Nance. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Malcolm is the author of the new book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Malicious, Terrorists, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Malcolm is also a national security and counterterrorism expert. He served 20 years in the United States Navy. He's a former senior chief petty officer specializing in naval cryptology. Most recently, he spent the last four months Fighting in Ukraine as part of... Yes. Yes. Malcolm was part of the country's international legion. Malcolm, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much. I'm going to sit down now, and um, I want to start off. But you know what I want to do? I want I want to talk with you very much about your book. Sure. But Ukraine is something every one of us really cares about. Sure. You've been there. You've been on the ground. You've been helping them in all manner of things in Ukraine. Four months that you spent there, you were there on the front lines. A couple of questions I have. One is, um, at the beginning, when the Russians we're amassing all this stuff and our intelligence services were telling us they're preparing for an invasion. Mm -hmm. We knew what they were doing. We knew, the Ukrainians knew that they were planning an invasion. It always seemed as if, if the United States wanted to stop the invasion from happening, to truly help the Ukrainians, that would have been the place to do it. Could we have done that? Well, that depends on what you view the word stop as. I mean, could we have gone and carried out airstrikes or could we have, uh, you know, done something diplomatically or politically? Let me tell you something. In fact, I've been in Ukraine since the last week of January. So actually, Mm. I've spent almost seven months in Ukraine. And I came home for 10 days to get all my combat equipment uh, at the end of February when the invasion started. Uh, but I spent that month doing an analysis of the order of battle, the Russian, where all the Russian forces were, how they were going to move. We went down all the major highways in Ukraine to see how would they actually invade? What would it look like when they right. flowed into the country? What villages, what crossroads, which most importantly, which gas stations had liquor in them, right? <laughs> uh, which turns out to be true because the Sokar gas stations are Azerbaijani run and they have a wall of liquor that they sell, including 12 year Azeri cognac. Uh, you and, know this. <laughs> and displays of Jack Daniels and six packs of Coke. So we knew the Russians would take a long time at those. And whereas the Wog or the, um, the Oko gas stations didn't have as much alcohol. So that literally was part of our factoring. 
And we have video of the Russians looting a SOCAR. That's stealing the money, pulling down all of the alcohol off the wall, hundreds of bottles of alcohol. So, you know, all of these things go into the, the, the kind of intelligence analysis that I was doing. And I was reporting this on MSNBC at the time, even though I was not part of MSNBC's team on the ground in Ukraine. I was there as an independent uh, national security analyst. But one of the things that I learned very quickly was it was becoming very apparent by the beginning of February that the United States had a copy of the battle plan. I was seeing things occur and things that the White House were saying that was very clear to me, anyone in the intelligence community, that we knew what they were doing. And this wasn't like we just intercepted that communication that day or we were just look, you know, some spy came in that morning. <coughs> Excuse me. This was something we knew. And the White House was selectively releasing. We know you're going to do this. We know you have these troops here. We know you're going to come across this axis. And then we start seeing the Ukrainians do defensive activities Mm -hmm. in the precise, you know, lines of attack that we expected, like up near Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Yes. Right. Which is a radioactive wasteland. But we the Ukrainians and the Americans knew they would come through it. Their vehicles could endure going through that radioactive area. And as we later found out, they didn't quite know what radiation was. <laughs> I'm not joking. I mean, they, they had hundreds of people sickened by being in the hottest nuclear zone on the right. planet. Right. So, uh, you know, so as we watched all of this unfolding, it became pretty clear to me that the White House had a copy of the plan. Wow. And that. Well, according to the New York Times reporting in February, they had had a copy of the plan since early October, October, November. Well, you know, this is how intelligence works. And every once in a very great while, I mean, I did 20 years active duty, literally in some of the, the greatest secrets the United States have. And very rarely do you see what we call crown jewels intelligence. Just as soon as you look at it, you go. Who did you buy? Right. Right. I mean, sometimes I mean, I remember one activity that I saw. It just was very clear to me. Someone took a forklift of gold bars and bought it into the room and went over to the back of their Mercedes and goes, I'm going to put this pallet of gold bars in your trunk and you're going to hand that envelope over to me because that's legit. Right. Whatever the White House had here. It was clear this was crown jewels intelligence. Someone had come to the United States. Somebody had brought an entire copy of the plan to us, or so it appeared. And the White House would later sort of confirm that they were dropping the intelligence that they knew. They went to the Chinese with a copy of the plan. They went to Zelensky. And and we also had Russian politicians that knew. Uh, Zirinovsky, this this loudmouth uh, you know, uh, pro-Putin uh, autocrat there who later died this year. He said in mid-December that they would invade the last week of February somewhere around the 24th. And that was after all the delays were factored in because it appeared that us releasing intelligence delayed the Russians. The Russians wanted some measure of surprise. Right. They were going to get it. But, you know, the way that the White House handled this was brilliant. But to those of us in the community, it was clear 
maybe two forklifts of gold bars <laughs> were there. And we bought a tractor trailer for them to take it home with and gave them one of the forklifts. I mean, this was pure. It, it was just too good for them to have an outline. And, the th- you know, I had in the pre-war had gone to Donetsk and Luhansk with the commander of the Ukrainian Joint Task Force, General Sersky, mm-hmm. who is commanding right at the battlefront that they've held since 2014. We were 70 meters. That's 210 feet away from the Russians. But the media was coming to them and asking crazy questions like, well, I know the Russians are right over there, but what if they attack from the south? And this guy's going you know, like, I've been fighting these guys for three years. Yeah. Uh, I'll fight them when they come from the south. But what if they attack from the north? I'll fight them if they come from the north. And I'm like, wait, people do not understand what they're doing here. They're watching a general's response. I'm watching the general. And I said this on MSNBC. I said, these guys are going to fight. I can tell by the look in this man's eye. He is ready to kick Russian ass and enjoy it. And, you know, he's a very short guy. He's a thick guy, you know. And the other commander, the commander of land warfare was General Sersky. You know, guy's about five foot five. Five foot five of five foot five inches of I cannot be defeated. No, really. And as I looked at them, I was like, whoa, I think there's something happening here in media that is not being factored. And I said this on one of the MSNBC shows about three or four days before the invasion. And they were like, well, you know, the invasion will be quick. Analysts were coming on. The invasion will be quick. They'll right. lose rather fast. And I said, hey, let me tell you something. They I were talking in- about the Ukrainians losing. Right. They the said Ukrainians the Ukrainians, losing. he would be in there within two weeks. It would all be over. Right. They, the entire war Kiev. would be over. Kiev yeah. would be taken in right. 72 hours. And I kept thinking, this is why intelligence field collectors are the smart ones to listen to. We're on the ground. Right. And I've been in the city of Kiev. It's the size of Chicago. It has a bigger population. It's 5 million people. And these 20 stories, Soviet apartment blocks that are 20 buildings deep. And I'm like, no one's ever taking this city. Mm. All right. There's little old ladies right now who are woefully heartbroken that they didn't get to throw their Molotov cocktails (laughs) out the 18 story window on top of Russian tanks there. If you go to the checkpoints in Kiev right now, there are thousands upon thousands of Molotov cocktails in crates waiting for the reservists because they expected to be fighting him hand and, you know, fist with the Russians. The Russians never got near going anywhere near taking Kiev, except one ambush that the Ukrainians let them into the city and slaughtered them wholesale. And, you know, I, I said the same thing in the pre-war. I go, they're never going to they're going to lose this war. They don't have enough men to win this war. The Russians. You know, don't. yes. And, and I you made still some, believe that, that the sure, Ukrainians are going to win. Sure. <laughs> That's a, sorry. I have a sore throat. He's from been talking, talking too much. For days. And it <laughs> gave stop. me a cold. And I got to tell you, I, they're not going to win. Russia definitively, without any question, is going to lose this war. The question is, <laughs> the only question is, what day are we going to have the victory over Russia parade? Right. <laughs> are we going to have to get in clean uniforms? 
So, you know, I mean, I'm a member of the International Legion. I, you know, I, I am with the forces that are fighting the Russians on the front line on the Eastern Front. And I can tell you right now, whatever combat power they have left, it's spent. They do not want to be uh, they carrying out any more operations. Well, you know, the, the big threat that, that Putin Poot is, is always putting out there is that they're going to, he's going to launch a nuke. And so it's supposed to make everybody back off. How can Ukraine defeat Mother Russia without Putin, you know, his ego, would it be able to handle it without him launching a nuke? Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, that's like saying, you know, um, you have you have fire insurance on your home. Right. And you're constantly worried about an arsonist coming to your house. <laughs> I mean, you know, that could happen. Well, if the it's arsonist threatened me, Putin's threatening it. Yeah, but... You know, this is, I used to say this when I did, you know, counterterrorism. Is ISIS going to be my travel agent? Right. Am I going to allow them to determine whether I fly to Milan or not? Exactly. The same thing with Vladimir Putin. Right. If Vladimir Putin, let me tell you something. I worked in the National Nuclear Command Post for a short period of time. I have watched the, mach- the machination of how nuclear weapons are authorized and released and watched how Russia does it. We're going to have a big, long chain of intelligence indicators. Yeah. Right down to a guy who's sleeping in, you know, Vladivostok, where they think they're going to secret out one nuke, right? right. That the United States isn't watching, and there's going to be a phone call at NSA, and that right. guy's going to be like, well, yes, what do you want? And he's going to go, you're going to open up special locker number 735. And he's going to go, What? And they're going to go, yeah, yeah, you're going to open up and then vehicles are going to move and our satellites are going to see it. And before they ever open that locker, there's going to be a critical report going to the commander in chief to we're going to wake Joe Biden up at three in the morning. And we're going to say Vladivostok nuclear weapons storage handling facility is taking out a five kiloton nuclear weapon. And there is a special train which appears to be routed to the eastern part of the country. And they're going to say, well, what does that mean? And it means they are taking out a five kiloton nuke to carry out a tactical nuclear strike. They won't even have that thing loaded before the United States is on the phone calling Vladimir Putin going, don't do it. We will be forced to destroy your air force. We will be forced to intervene militarily with NATO. We will be forced to invade Belarus. We will be forced to change the entire balance of Western of, of, of Eastern Europe. Don't think about it. And when you intervene like that, that's where you're going to get your factor of are we dealing with a madman or not? Right. So, I mean, Vladimir Putin may be thinking if I nuke Kiev, it will have all the fallout and the fallout pattern of Chernobyl. Right. Right. It'll go through Belarus. It'll go up through Kaliningrad and, you know, parts of Poland and then into Sweden. And that's not my problem. But the level of madness that that would require, even though they're talking about it on Russian state television. And when you talk about it, then you're viewing it as a viable weapon. But Malcolm, my understanding is Mm. that as many safeguards as we have here in the United States, Russia has safeguards too. So Putin's a madman, but could Putin independently launch? Wouldn't he be stopped by his own security forces who are not all that loyal to him? Well, you would hope. I mean, our system in the United States is not designed to stop. I have some news for you. The president of the United States is a nuclear monarch. If he chooses a viable... Oh, don't tell me that in the shadow of Donald Trump. (laughs) Oh, my God. Does he know? I I wrote, I was in an op-ed by Jonathan Capehart 
two months before Trump took power about the nuclear monarchy of Donald Trump and why it was so dangerous to allow him to have the keys to the box, Pandora's box. Fortunately, we've dodged that bullet for now. But I'm just saying is that if the president of the United States says Vladivostok nuclear weapons storage facility, you know, 325 is taking out a nuclear weapon, is intending to carry out a viable nuclear strike, the United States will execute a 30-minute response, which is somebody will spool up, right, a Minuteman 3 missile in Kansas, and in 32 minutes after getting launch authorization, it will vaporize that spot. Mm. Now we are in a different world. Let's just not even talk about this. The Mm. Russians, on the other hand, If they lose their army, let's say the Ukrainians carry out a massive counteroffensive this fall, which is quite possible, using U.S. missiles and rockets and all the artillery, and they break the back of the Russian army, which is what I think is going to happen. Yes. And the Russian army collapses. Yes. Right. And it's a rout. Uh, And they lose Kherson province, Luhansk province, Donetsk province, everything except Crimea. They blow the Crimea bridge. Then you need to start thinking about what what Vladimir Putin is going to do, because that's a level of humiliation, you know, that I'm not sure he can live with. But if he goes and reaches for the phone to call that nuclear weapon storage facility and goes to his command post out near wherever Minsk or wherever, or I'm sorry, not Minsk, uh, out in eastern Ukraine, uh, eastern uh, Russia, and he decides he's going to launch something, a lot of chains have to go, and you got to think. Who is going to relieve Vladimir Putin of his command? Yeah. Because that's all you can do. Otherwise, they'll go through with it. Now, we need to be prepared for that. And, you know, for all the planners that we have in the United States, all right, people like, you know, I mean, I know the the, the Biden White House with Jake Sullivan, those guys are real, real politic kind of guys. But I come from the world where I have to go through all the what ifs. I have to understand and plan for the enemy commander's worst option, right? Worst course of action. Yeah. And that would be, he's not going to, let me tell you something. He's not going to nuke Odessa. He's not going to nuke, you know, Mariupol or Kharkiv. Right. It's close to Russia. Right. Right. He's going to do what Olga Skabeva said, which is neutralize the den of rats, right? A city that's over 2,000 years, you know, that's well over uh, uh, 1,100, 1,200 years old. And despite his admiration of its architecture in the center of Russian Orthodox Church, that doesn't mean he's not going to lose his mind when he loses his army. So, you know, the less we talk about this, the better. Look, we just talked about it for five minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, it's scary. It's really scary. scary. But I got to tell you, you have a new book that's scary, too. It's called They Want to Kill Americans. And it really does sound an alarm to the entire country. And not only about, you know, what Donald Trump almost did, but about what is going on. And the I don't know what it is that he unleashed. It's like this, you know, hill of army ants that are crazy freaking people that are willing to do anything. And I don't know how much there's going to be to stop them. So tell us how dire we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. Tell us about how dire the situation is in the United States of America right now. Well, you know, over the last few months. I've, I've, you know, I, I, I consider fighting in Ukraine as helping maintain the bulwark of, of democracy on the Eastern Front. Yes. Right. And because if Ukraine collapses, Ukraine's a democratic nation. Yeah. They've had nine presidents. They've had elected presidents who were pro Moscow, but they were yeah. elections. 
And this has nothing to do with them wanting to join NATO. It had to do with them wanting to be part of the European Union. And they hated the idea of them losing the breadbasket of Europe, a country that holds 25% of the world's food, of the world's wheat. I mean, it's just a resource they could not afford. And then becoming part of the West, further isolating Vladimir Putin and his expansionist neo-Soviet dreams. You know, I keep mentioning this. I went to Vladimir Putin's office when I wrote my book, Plot to Destroy Democracy. His office in Dresden, Germany. When he was oh, a, in Dresden. When he was a KGB officer. Ah, yeah. You know, old spies sitting around the offices. You can sit around and feel the feel the 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 ambiance of that. Well, were you just in his office or did you meet him? No, no, no. This is when he was this is back when he was a baby spy. Yeah, and he, and he wasn't was all that well KGB thought of, officer. was he? Well, you know, he was a young KGB officer, ambitious, you know, a, a junior lieutenant, a colonel. Uh, kind of looked like Stephen Miller at the time. Yeah, sort of. But <laughs> but even back then, he had these shark eyes. Uh, and his other KGB officers wanted to sit around and drink beer. They're in Germany. This guy liked flipping people. He liked being a human intelligence officer. Mm. He liked turning Westerners into traitors. And um, when I sat in his office, I met the woman who had renovated the office. And she goes, every door frame, every window frame in this building had hidden microphones in it. And they actually had to pry them open and pull all the microphones out. And she was like, you know, like a mile of wire here. But Putin was one of those guys who liked that game. Yeah. And he liked even more the East German Stasi model of Mm -hmm. an authoritarian Nazi-style state with communist trappings. So interestingly, when he left, when the fall of the Soviet Union collapsed, he didn't fill his lot up with luxury Western goods. He went to the Stasi headquarters and took out the book of spies, all the people that they had flipped. And he would use that in the future to manipulate people. So why am I telling you that story? This is a man that loves his game. It'd be like making me president of the United States. First thing I'd say is, I don't want lunch. I want to be briefed on every covert operation that's going on right now. Right. And can I help? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The fun stuff. But Putin... <laughs> saw himself as grander than this when he became, you know, an oligarch, when he started controlling the oligarchs and controlling trillions of dollars mm-hmm. of money. Mm-hmm. Then he saw himself essentially as a, a czar. And he, he started adopting the czarist, you know, motto of Tsar Nicholas I, right? Oligarchy, orthodoxy, uh, monarchy. Well, with Putin, it was oligarchy, autocracy, you know, orthodoxy. And he created an autocratic state, which is controlled by him, which is controlled by the money that he allows people to have who are oligarchs. Otherwise, he seizes it or he makes you take a long walk out of a short window. Right. Or poisons you. So he helped create Donald Trump. There's no doubt about that. I mean, Donald Trump was under Russian surveillance. What about the P tape? I mean, was the P tape? Uh, I don't think that's real at all. But, you know, (laughs) the point is, it's symbolic of Compromise, right? It's symbolic of Donald Trump's, his entire history. Every phone call he made when he was married to Ivana Trump was recorded by Czech intelligence, the STB. Mm. Well, how do we know that? Because Czech television has copies of all of them, right? And there was the Guardian did a huge report where they had the the reporting authority was Ivana's father, right? Mm -hmm. This was the Soviet era. 
Donald Trump, you know, and when the kids were going over there, they were going into a Soviet world right. and thinking they could manipulate and, and be around people that were run by the KGB. So when Vladimir Putin heard Donald Trump wanted to become president, I know what he did. First thing he said was, hey, go to the archives, pull everything about Donald Trump. And what he was probably surprised about was that they bought in a wheelbarrow full of surveillance, collection and all of these things right. and analyses about him. So Donald Trump is merely an avatar for the hatred that all of his followers have for diversity and equality and in equal and human rights and having to tolerate LGBT people and women in their universe, uteruses, right? right? All right. Donald Trump as an avatar also understood that you have to motivate them, you right. have to keep them happy, and then from time to time you have to unleash them. Just as the Russians unleashed him by giving him assistance to take down Hillary Clinton, from that point onward, it was autonomous. The Russians had nothing to do with it. It was all Americans who loved the nasty, mean, hateful, spiteful things he had to say about other Americans. But the way he would say it was as if he was America and they were Americans and the other 65% of the country had nothing to do with their world. And this is how they're, how can I put it? They've created a false reality. They're very much like ISIS in this respect, the Islamic State. ISIS created a false narrative that they were the only legitimate Muslims in the world. And the other 1.6 billion Muslims, well, they could be executed at will. Yes, yeah, same thing with join. Donald Trump, that his followers were the only true Americans. Yeah, and this is what they say. They say it, Right. We are the patriots, right? They when they And that's why the they hate us. They hate us just because we exist and that we're not supporters of Donald Trump because we're not one of them, so they hate us. Yeah, pretty They're much. They're willing to kill us? Well, some of them are willing to kill some us. Some of them are willing to kill but us. Many of them are waiting for the opportunity when they get in the, you know, this is where we talk about QAnon ideology, right. that right. crazy group that believes all liberals are evil, right. that Hillary Clinton and all the liberal leadership are kidnapping children and drinking their blood in order to get a chemical called adrenochrome, which is only secreted when a child is terrified before death, which, by the way, is the don't laugh. It's the actual uh, it's the actual theme of the movie Monsters, Inc. <laughs> right? And the monster scared child and the child gets scared and they powers the monster universe some moron worked all of this into this crazy ideology but made donald trump the hero where he's uh -huh. saving all of the kidnapped children around the world from pedophiles that are liberals there are as many as 20 million americans that believe this ideology many of them are armed many of them thought january 6th was the day of the storm, which was QAnon belief that they were going to mass murder all liberals in America. Now, don't believe me. Believe them. They'll, they'll tell you right out there. Now, to us, it sounds ludicrous. To an armed person, uh, there was a QAnon murder where a father went to Baja, California and murdered his two children. Yes. There was another one where a guy, where a woman murdered her child. I remember in the run up to the election, there was a woman who was interviewed, and I think it was with Time magazine, and she said 
uh, the way that liberals are today, I would rather kill my children yes. than allow them to live in a liberal America. This is a deranged pathology. This is a corruption of the mind where common decency, what they call you know, political correctness, being kind to people, being sympathetic to people, showing empathy. Being diverse. Being diverse, being equal is now a hated symbol to them. But Malcolm, you talk about 20 million Americans who Oh, that's followed. just QAnon. Uh, Don't forget, 71 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. But a lo- a lo- there are Republicans who don't necessarily believe that all non-Trumpists are evil. They're just Republicans. And so they feel like they have to pull the lever for the Republicans. They're not dangerous, right? And why are they cooperating? Why are they empowering these people? Why aren't they standing up and saying, what the hell is going on around here? What, you're killing my party. I think what you're, you, the mistake that you're making yeah. is that you are attributing good intentions to these politicians. Mm. How about this? I'm going to give you an alternate analysis. Okay. Right? All right. Uh, how about they've always believed those things? Truly. But, yeah. I'm just saying, this is my take. They always believe those things, but common decency and civil discourse and comedy did not allow them to say these things out loud. But now their base allows them to say these things out loud. But there are, when people get out of the party, when they know that they're being primary, (laughs) when they know this is happening, they do start speaking out against it. So isn't it just for political expediency? Who who are those people speaking against it? Because I don't hear a verb. Adam Kinzinger. Okay, he's not a Republican. He's a good person. He is a good person. He's a Democrat. Are I mean, Republicans Republican not good only. people? I mean, I used to be that. He's kind a of rhino. Republican. I used to be that kind of Republican. Yeah. Colin Powell type, national security, strong, socially liberal supporter, kind of guy. Ready supporter to of around. Ronald Reagan. Sure. You know, but right. that's not where we are. That's not where. OK, we are. if we had that X, Y axis. Colin Powell would have been just up into the right upper quadrant, just just over the X and Y cross. Yeah. Now he's, you know, God bless him in his last days. He's way down in the lower left corner, hardcore liberal communist. So is Richard Nixon. I mean, it's just gone. And Ronald Reagan. What you're missing. I mean, the party has transformed itself into the party of Trumpism. And Trumpism is about unabashed, unapologetic indecency. It's about getting in people's face. It's about telling people that that I hate you because my version of America is the true one and yours is communist, which I find fascinating from people who loved an ex-KGB officer who was a lifelong communist, right? And who loves a North Korean dictator who is a communist. Mm-hmm. You know, these people live in a state of perpetual victimhood. So when they hear, you know, their tribal leader, which is what Donald Trump is, he is not the leader of political party. He's the leader of a tribe, the white tribe, the white tribe that believes only they deserve America. Only they should get the benefits of America and that everyone else is a moocher, a liar, a cheat, a dirty immigrant, a black person who's lazy, uh, you know, a Hispanic person who's come across the border illegally. A person with a uterus. A person. Oh, well, a person (laughs) with a uterus. Right. You're you're a walking crime right there. Okay, (laughs) contemplating crimes every time you have sex. 
So don't, don't laugh. Did everyone hear about North Carolina's proposed bill today? In which a person who is planning to have an abortion, the doctor can be murdered to prevent the abortion. I'm not joking. There was a, there's another bill that's proposed in Ohio today, right? No exceptions. Rape, incest, you must carry the baby to term. So all you female criminals out there, right, we know what you're thinking. We're th- you're thinking, wow, I didn't think The Handmaid's Tale was a documentary. It is. <laughs> and you're now living in a country where those people feel empowered to make that movie a documentary, Because Donald Trump has unleashed, you know, Abraham Lincoln said that we have to look for the better angels, right? right? Right. Our better angels. Yeah. This man, it's almost like he cut a deal with Satan to look for our worst demons. Yeah. And then empowered people to say, well, remember what he was saying? Knock him out. Back in the old days, we would beat him. Policemen, you know, give him an extra hit when you put him in the car. This is the worst the worst anybody in this country has done yeah. outside of putting on a white robe and setting fire to a cross. Right. Right. Now they all have AR-15s and they feel empowered to march and threaten you implicitly with their Second Amendment rights, which, by the way, their weapons have more rights than women. So you need to think about this in the context of them as a power organization that is seeking to dominate the other 65% of America. Now you're going, Malcolm, this is crazy and outlandish. Why would you say all this? Imagine I am an MI6 intelligence officer in England, and I have to write up the Jerry Springer-like world that's going on on the other side of the Atlantic for the Queen. It would come out exactly like I just said it. And they would have all the examples that I just gave you there. And they would say... Yeah, we have troubles in England, right? but we do not have, you know, as many as 70 million armed Americans, you know, who are 20 million who are espousing that all liberals should be mass murdered in this country. We just want a decent cup of tea. All right. And trust me, that is the highest priority in England. So I I worked at, you know, I've been around. So... (laughs) If that analysis is being done in London, it's being done in Paris, it's being done in Europe, and they look at us with askance, what is happening to the United States? All these mass shootings of these young white men, those are templates. Those all have the same characteristics of the anti-immigrant mass murderer Anders Bering Brevik in Norway. Right. When he killed 68 people, as many as 60 children under the age of 16. And when he said in his trial, why did you do it? And he said, they've corrupted us with immigrants here. They've spoiled the white purity. I wanted to eliminate the next generation of liberal children. Next, the Christchurch shooter copies his manifesto, live streams his mass murders of Muslims. The shooter in Quebec, the shooters, you know, in um, uh, the shooter in uh, in uh, in Uvalde, the shooter in El Paso, the shooter in in, uh, in, in, in Pittsburgh, they all copy Anders Bering Brevik's right. um, manifesto. manifesto. It's not because they like Anders Bering Brevik. What you're looking at is part of the insurgency 
I predicted on November 6th on Bill Maher's show. They aren't individual little points of crazy. They are an ideology coming up and manifesting itself through mass murder. Now, what happens when a governor or a state has an election and they've just decided liberals will not, you know, progressives or Democrats will not take power and they occupy the state house. And instead of calling out the National Guard, the governor sides with them. Right. Which and is the a federal- very distinct possibility. It's a possibility in the upcoming presidential election in 2020. Sure. But then the president of the United States tries to nationalize the National Guard and the state governor's National Guard general says, I follow the commander in chief, who's the governor, not you. Right. And I violate all federalist, you know, all, all nationalist, you know, nationalism uh, statutes that are in the Department of Defense. Now, what do you have? What are you going to deploy the regular army? Yeah, you might have to. We may find ourselves not in a constitutional crisis, in an armed rebellion. In an existential crisis. And it would be an existential crisis. Look, I'm sorry. This November is an existential crisis. We lose this election in November. It's done. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not here to, to make you glad hand or happy. And I'm not here as a Democrat to tell you that. I'm here as an intelligence professional to tell you what I talk with my peers overseas. And they understand that this could be the end of where the Republicans cease governing 100 percent, then use the laws to hammer each and every one of you, prosecute all of their all of the people in Congress that they find as enemies. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the number three person in the House of Representatives. You think this is poss- is not possible. It's on the way. And that's why I wrote this book. It is the final warning I'm going to be able to write. And I just hope that I'm wrong. Unfortunately, I'm never wrong. Malcolm, (laughs) you're never wrong about what's coming. You're never wrong about the warnings. Can you tell us how we're going to stop it? Well, that's up to you now, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, really? Literally. It's up to every individual. Well, is it at the ballot box? I mean, it can only be done at the ballot box. The only weapon we have. You know, people come up to me all the time. And they're like, oh, Malcolm, what kind of guns should I buy? And should I put away survival goods? No. No, I'm a Philadelphian. I'm going to get upset right now. I was born and raised in a naval hospital in a family that goes all the way back in armed force service to April 1864. Every Nance male has served in the armed forces since that time. Mm. And I wish my sisters had joined in. But let me tell you, well, my niece is the last one. God bless her. But let me tell you something. As a Philadelphian, I'm an originalist as to what was written down at Fifth and Chestnut Street. I was just there the other day. I walk, you know, I was going to WHYY to do fresh air. You know, I, I, I step out for a few minutes. I look, I see Independence Hall and I, I get choked up. Yeah. You know, I defended this. I defended you. I defend those idiots who are out there saying that they're real Americans. But not when you take up guns against this nation. You take up rebellion. You preach sedition. Well, there's a template for that, too. Started in 1860. Mm -hmm. And what I want is I want to wake up the average American citizen. I want you to wake up and start telling your neighbor what you're saying is wrong. You are not an American. You are anti-American. No one tells them that. They talk to each other. And they just, you know, you know, chat amongst themselves about how awesome it's going to be for the second American Revolution. Really? 
Right. It, it, it wasn't that great for everybody who was killed in the American Revolution. 1776, they say. They say to themselves, the new yep. 1776. Right. You know, you have to stand up and stop this. And the first thing you have to do is stand up and use your voice. Then use the only weapon the founding fathers gave you. Look, flawed guys. All right. What is that famous line by Tina Fey? Uh, where she was talking about Thomas Jefferson, the immortal words of Thomas Jefferson, who said, hey, who's that hot mulatto chick next to the butter churn? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That's our founding fathers. It is. Men of the Enlightenment who liked their sister-in-law. But it's true. Go look that up. But they understood the nation could be better. Every two steps forward, there could be a step back, but it will be forward. It will be forward. We are at an inflection point where people are saying there will be no more steps forward. We will regress and take it back. And anyone that gets in our way will understand what AR-15s are for. And at that point, you have to stand up. Can somebody explain to me why there hasn't been a protest since a real protest since the pink hat protest in January 2017? That was called the pussy hat. Yeah, well, there's that one, too. All right. Uh, the pussy hat protest. My <laughs> wife had one. God bless her. And why? Why? Why is it not important enough for you to stop this, to get out by the tens of millions like that protest? Right. Why has it been OK for all these things? You're all mad about everything. But everyone and this is part of the problem. You're mad about your little thing. You're mad about birth control, but you're not mad about criminal justice reform. You need to be mad about the loss of America. They say this all the time. America's being destroyed. Yeah, you're doing the destroying. No, they think the fact that you get equal rights, that you will act with kindness and decency to other Americans, they view that, they view that as the loss of their nation. Our nation was built on flawed decision-making by men who understood their flaws. Now our nation is being dismantled by flawed people who embrace their inner hatreds as virtues, right? There is no Jefferson, no Adams, no Madison, no decency, no word of Washington at all. And I love George Washington in any of the words of these people who carried out the insurrection. You know what I hear? I hear the words of Jefferson Davis. I hear the words of that traitorous rat bastard, Robert E. Lee, who quit being commandant at my, our beloved military academy, West Point, to go be the traitorous commander of an army that took up arms against the United States. You can see I don't like Robert E. Lee. But you have to understand, till you stand up and start saying these things, right? Come out with the signs. And here's another thing. Well, for God's sakes, please take back the American flag, people. Yeah. Take it back. With us. If you come out to protest, don't bring a sign. Hang the sign around your neck on a right. string and carry a giant American flag. And I know you're not going to beat the protester with it like they do. Okay. Right? So I hope, that, I hope that's part of the solution. <laughs> Um, I, I think we're at a place where we should start asking some questions of uh, our attendees. Um, so I just got a whole nother batch. So let me just kind of pull some of these. One of them says, has World War III started? No. Next. When? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Believe um, me, there's no World War III going on. Ukraine is not World War III. There is not an exchange of atomic weapons. No, what we're having is we have a country that has invaded its neighbor through sheer, raw aggression, and the world is pushing back against it. But the world hasn't intervened. Drop a nuke, and you're going to see every country in Europe invade Eastern Europe. And we'll have to, one, to rescue the survivors of that. Right. Two, we're going to have to revolve ourselves in regime change. Yep. And that doesn't mean we're going to go over to Moscow. No, 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 no. The people in Moscow are going to have to figure out whether they want radiation all over their country. Right? Because you know that radiation doesn't just go to Belarus. The wind blows it around the world, and you're having it in your milk the next day. Right? Uh, So they have to understand that Vladimir Putin losing his mind and nuking Kiev or nuking, God forbid, Kharkiv, which would be 25 kilometers from the Russian border, be like nuking yourself, is madness. Madness. And they cannot allow madness on. Someone's going to have to resolve that with a garret, a strong arm, or a lead chain of change of command ceremony. Right? Who scares you more, Putin or Trump and company GOP? Trump, without any question. No, really. I, we're holding the eastern flank in Ukraine. <laughs> Ukraine will survive this. It'll be damaged. It'll take a trillion dollars of reconstruction. Mm-hmm. We will break the Russian army. Uh, we're already happening, and I'm enjoying this part of the game. Okay? But on the other hand, American democracy collapsing. Every time I look over my shoulders, three in the morning, I start looking at the tweets from the previous night in the United States, and I go, what the hell is going on back there? Yeah. You know? And then I get an air raid and I get deflected. So, no, really. But that experience, exactly what the average American is experiencing. They see something in the news, they hear a little snippet in the news, and then the kid breaks the cookie jar or the cat, you know, is uh, trying to get out of the house and they, they stop paying attention to it. Our job is to make 20% more people that voted in 2018, pay attention and vote in 2022. Yeah. Right? Right. And then, then you won't have this problem. We out, overwhelmingly outnumber Absolutely. Uh, conservatives and pro-Trump people. Overwhelmingly. But, you know, and, and don't do this, this little trick people bring to me and they go, well, what if they get violent? Well, what if? You're going to find out something. I went through SWAT officer school when I, when I was in the Navy. And uh, you're going to find out why we fund SWAT teams. Because let me tell you, the most jealous people on this planet in terms of law and order is police officers. Yeah, granted, every once in a while they get out of control. But you know what they don't want? You know what they won't allow? Armed gunmen to start shooting their neighbors willy-nilly up and down the streets. All right? Malcolm, they participated in January 6th. Members of the military. Some of them. Some of them did. Yeah, some here in the Bay Area. 20% of the people who uh, participated in January 6th were veterans or military. 20%, that's a lot. One in five. Yeah, it was a lot. But they weren't active duty. There were some active duty. They've all been court-martialed. Good. You know, the cops who were there from Northern Virginia, fired. DEA officer came out, flagged his badge, had his firearm, fired. Right? They're all getting convicted of these things. The problem is we're being quiet about their convictions we need to go out and say criminal cop convicted of you know insurrection and sedition right as opposed to 
you know, even if he gets 14 days for a misdemeanor. You know, a lot of these people don't realize they're getting convicted of felonies and they can never own a firearm again. <laughs> if you explain like that, that to them, a lot of this, this, <laughs> this will go away. So next question. Uh, talk about uh, your impression of the January 6th Select Committee. I don't think you're all that impressed. I, in some ways, yes, I am. I mean, what they are is they are documenting for the record what happened. The problem is not the committee. Everything that they've written, an enormous amount of what they're finding now, I, I discovered a year ago. And, it, you know, the book was finished a year ago. And it's great that we're all coming to the same page. We reach the same conclusions. It's just that my analysis goes out the next generation and starts telling you, well, you had this one incident. What's the next one going to look like? Yeah. Are they going to start using computerized, you know, drones to drop bombs on our neighbors or to, you know, on the next Thanksgiving Day parade, you know, or the next inaugural event and start assassinating, you know, liberal politicians as they as they meet for Yom Kippur prayer or something along that line. I have no idea. But I do know this. Until people are publicly held to account and scorned, 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 right, as traitors to this nation. Well, hold it. Treason is a technical term in which you have to betray the country to a third party foreign power in a time of war. Okay, rat bastard seditionist. There you go. How's that? There you go. Was Ivana Trump killed? No. Next. <laughs> Look, she wouldn't get a hip replacement and she went to the top of stairs. Shoot, I could have fallen down those stairs. <laughs> How did the FBI slash CIA Defense Department handle uh, Homeland Security all miss the warnings about January 6th? Well, they didn't. In fact, the one place that really had great warnings was the FBI field office in Norfolk, Virginia. Hmm. Here is the thing. Right. I read about that. Here is the thing that happened. You read about it in my book. Uh, (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Here is the thing about January 6th. (laughs) <laughs> the attackers and the insurrectionists were all camouflaged. They were camouflaged yeah. and closed on their enemies and couldn't be seen because they had white skin. And the cops are like, oh, it's just white Trump voters. Yeah, a bunch of loudmouth Walmart shoppers, right? right? Yeah, until the first spear went into their face, until the first bear spray was sprayed across the entire line. But the problem is that belief that those people would do nothing, would be benign, allowed them to close upon their enemies and smash their lines. In the military, you've got to have a jungle for that to carry out an ambush of that level of intensity. Right. Right. You have to have some form of massive camouflage. Well, they had the camouflage of white people won't do anything. Well, now we need to dispel ourselves of that myth. Okay. We can tell you right now, I, you know, when I talk to cops and I train cops, here's what I get all the time. Malcolm, am I going to go to guns? Are we going to have a gun battle with ISIS or Al-Qaeda? No. ISIS, you know, Al-Qaeda members were pulled over two times before 9-11. And you know what they did? They took their tickets. They said, thank you, officer, and thought, you will be hearing from me later. <laughs> right? They tell you, I mean, they don't have to come to go to guns with you. I always say this to these to the state troopers and SWAT cops. 
if you're going to go to guns, if you're going to have a draw down, boom, 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 you know, expend all of your magazines gun battle, it's going to be done with a sovereign citizen. One of these people that believe that there is no authority in the land except the county sheriff. And we actually have this crazy group called the Constitutional Sheriff Movement who believe that they're the only authority in their land. Yeah. Right. And there is no federal government. There is no state government. I mean, these people go straight to the guns. And every time I talk to the cops, they go, oh, yeah, we had that training. Yeah, they have crazy things, you know, going on. You know, you always see the bumper stickers. Timothy McVeigh, no license plate. Right. Or license plates that are handmade. Right. They're in the book. They are a force that you need to understand exists out there and are armed. Another group that's armed are the militias, who you also talk about. Um, They're joining forces because they've been a little different from one another. They call themselves different things, but they're joining forces now. Um, Talk a little bit about the danger that they pose. Now, I'm going to touch on the militias because the militias, as far as I'm concerned, are no longer the biggest problem. What I call collectively the Titus, T-I-T-U-S, the Trump insurgency in the United States. All right, this is how we do it in the intelligence community world. We just lump you all together into a happy little title. But we do that so that you know who we're talking about specifically. It's that political wing, right? The Republican Party who are carrying out insurgency in the halls of power by not allowing any power to be affected, by destabilizing the government, by waiting to take over power so they can destroy government. Then you have the militias, the Proud Boys, the 3% militia, the Oath Keepers, the Boogaloo Boys, the Patriot Front, um, you know, all of these disparate groups that up until Charlottesville, had never even coordinated together, never cooperated together. And then in Charlottesville, they came together along with neo-Confederates, you know, Civil War rejectionists, uh, small state militias. But by 2020, the summer of George Floyd, for every one of them, there were about 10 average Trump voting Americans who just went and got their guns got their camouflage uniforms, and started turning out as a third wing, unorganized or lightly organized according to shooting clubs, or just hearing about where you could get together with the people who were going to defend neighborhoods. Good example, Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse didn't belong to a group. No. He just heard there was going to be a protest by liberals at Antifa, and he went down to meet some friends and bought an AR-15, and they just decided they were going to guard a car dealership where no one called them to be, no one asked them to be there, and the cops treated them as friendly forces. Gave them water, said that they appreciate them being there. Right. That has to end, right? Anyone in the middle of a riot with firearms should be, even though there's rights, should be disarmed, weapons neutralized, tell them to take their happy asses home, right? And then neutral and then get in between the two forces. And we didn't see we don't see police doing that. We see police standing back and letting people fight. But then Kyle became a, a hero. That he became a hero to yeah, he was right-wing politicians. Yeah, you know, Timothy Embraced, McVeigh. loved him. Timothy McVeigh would be an intern in Marjorie Taylor Greene's office. Oh, easily. Easily. Hell. Maybe chief of staff. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, you know, they admire people who take action, 
who use the tools, the hammer that they have, that they all want to use. Like the one guy said in Idaho, or I think it was Idaho or Oregon, when do we get to use our guns? When can we start killing people? They stole an election. We should start killing people. Mm -hmm. This is a person who who was bloodlust to kill his fellow citizens on the belief that they are not citizens. They are just objects. And some of those people are going through the court system and being held to account. Then we get to the Supreme Court of the United States. Your thoughts on the SCOTUS? Well, I mean, you have a Supreme Court justice whose wife is a seditionist. Just straight up. Jeannie Thomas helped plan, coordinate, and fund the movement of people to that protest. Okay, let's say that she just helped move 40,000 people there in the 65 bus convoy. But we now know that she had met with people who were involved in the plot. We found out that she was uh, a rabid believer in some of the craziest conspiracy theories that Dominion voting machines and Hugh dead, 13-year dead Hugo Chavez planned this election hacking with the Chinese, right? With Dominion voting machine and evil liberals. Really? Really? We could barely plan lunch in this country together. (laughs) And this is their stupid evil plan. And you know what? I hope she loses her billion-dollar lawsuit. But you know what also needs to happen? The wife of a Supreme Court justice is a citizen. And she needs to be held to account just as much as each one of those protesters. Or each one of those insurrectionists. And if I was their lawyers... I would be all over this story. Well, why aren't you holding her to account? Why is my client being prosecuted? And is she Caesar's wife? Kind of. Well, you know, according to people in the United States, apparently there is a class of citizens that is above the law. That is true. And we need to open your mouths and hold them accountable. Look, I am all for First Amendment rights. And if a guy wants to go have a steak at Morton State House. He has to understand that there's still a First Amendment, right? right? So same with you. If you go out there and you want to have protests, people are going to shout naughty things at you. But you need to be American enough to take it. You need to understand that the entire history of our nation was built on murderous protests. Ask Crispus Attucks, the first man killed in the American Revolution. You know, throwing snowballs at armed British soldiers, not the wisest decision. No real margins for safety in that decision. But it was legitimate protest. And the, you know, the confusion, the fog of war, John Adams getting them off. It's part of the American story. But you don't have a right to have a stake after you've removed all the rights for every woman in this country. So you're just going to have to have cookouts all day, right? And there is no Caesar's wife in this country. And I swear to God, I have no idea what the attorney general is doing. Because apparently he feels, he he must feel that, yeah, there are people here who should be treated with a higher level of respect and dignity than the others. No. You break into the Capitol, you get treated the same way if you're a Supreme Court justice wife that plotted sedition against this nation. Handcuffs, back of a police car. If you're Peter Navarro, then you're going to have to cry in a D.C. jail until your lawyer gets you out. But when the evidence materializes, and until then, you're innocent. 
but don't think that's going to safeguard you forever. Someone eventually is going to call you out or someone's going to write a book and tell us the truth. (laughs) Well, there's there's the big cheese, orange as he is. Donald Trump. And, you know, he he right now he has stated, um, at least it's been reported that he stated that uh, he is going to announce his candidacy and announce it early. I mean, probably before the midterms happen in order to avoid prosecution, because he knows the Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel wrote that memo that said the president of the United States can't be indicted or some such nonsense. And so Donald Trump is taking that to mean that there will be political considerations coming out of the Justice Department that will protect him if he is a candidate from being indicted. Will it work? Is Merrick Garland that big a wuss? Well, (laughs) I don't. You know what? Not a lawyer. And let me but let me tell you something about lawyers. I have been in an MSNBC green room when three lawyers come together from opposite sides of the spectrum. Oh, fun. And they all behave exactly the same. (laughs) Anybody here a lawyer? First question you ask, who have you worked for? (laughs) Who did you clerk for? Where'd you go to school? Which law school were you in? Which class were you in? It becomes quite chummy. All right. It's like getting three generals together. Right. And they all went to West Point. Which class were you? I couldn't believe the comedy comedy that they were all showing each other. And I was like, you should knock that one on his ass because that guy called, you know, Barack Obama a traitor to the nation. And it's just like, no, we're all we all own law firms together. We might want jobs with them someday. Right. I don't understand it. I want everyone to be treated equally under the law. Merrick Garland is starting to look like one of the worst mistakes in American history. And I hope the White House is hearing this because I'm Joe Blow. Right. I don't need the president of the United States pointing to the attorney general and saying prosecute people. Joe Biden is never going to do that. Nor but should I, he. No, he shouldn't. It's indecent. It's, it's not his job. It's what Donald Trump would do. It's what Donald Trump would do. But I need the attorney general to say, oh, my God, American democracy was under physical attack. If Donald Trump had had his way, the line of secession might have been neutralized or killed that night. The vice president of the United States, the speaker of the House of Representatives, right. the president of the Senate pro tem. Yep would have left Donald Trump as the sole person in the line of secession uh, alive or incapacitated. Now, just think about that. If they had all been injured to the point where they couldn't do their jobs, only Donald Trump would have existed. Because no one's going to, he doesn't have to appoint a vice president right away. No one's going to be holding a vote after they're incapacitated, since you just took hostage the entire building, to get a new Speaker of the the Senate and a new Speaker of the House. No one. Donald Trump would have been the sole lawful legal authority in America that night had they been, had the plot been carried out, had murder cells infiltrated that group and had caught Nancy Pelosi or had caught, uh, you know, um, uh, Mike uh, Mike Pence. And I'll tell you what would have happened if they had gotten near Mike Pence. The Secret Service would have pulled out all their little MP7 submachine guns. And as soon as they saw imminent, dangerous, lethal threat, they would have massacred 
their way through them because that's their protocol. And I pray to God that's their protocol because the vice president of the United States was held in an in extremist situation where he was trapped in the Capitol and the president of the United States did nothing. Not only did nothing, he watched it on TV to see if he would be carried out or if he was going to carry out his plan to overthrow America's government. This must be taken down. This must be investigated ruthlessly. And the American people need to be educated in simple terms, right? Armed sedition. President foiled plot or, you know, president encouraged coup d'etat. And they go, you know, the average person will go, oh, really? Coup d'etat? When did that happen? Because I was playing Candy Crush. Because that's the attention span of the American citizen. So if you don't expel it outright, if you say January 6th commission looks harsh into Donald Trump's decisions, which were unprecedented, no one's going to hear that story. That's why our media gets away. That's why the the right wing gets away with murder, because they compress it down into cute little words. Hillary Clinton evil. How many times you heard that in the last seven years? Lock her up. Lock her up. Yeah, it's true. Which brings us, there are several people who ask essentially the same question. And the question is the media. The role the media plays in all of this, in the enabling and not calling out in treating Donald Trump like he was a joke instead of a serious threat in the beginning during the campaign. Uh, And once he took office, you know, there were people who were critical that the media was so hard on Donald Trump. They weren't nearly hard enough on Donald Trump. What about the role of the media, Malcolm? The media, well, it's, it's very important to our freedoms. You know, it's funny because I'm often asked, people say, well, you're a journalist. And I have to inform them. I go, oh, I'm not a journalist. Right. Just because I'm a member of the National Association of Black Journalism in the National Press Club, I'm a spy that talks on television. <laughs> There's a, and don't forget it. <laughs> which will give you a particularly interesting insight. Because I'm not doing it on the basis of, oh, I got to go find two sources. I don't know whether those two sources are lying. Let me cross-reference that. I analyze information the way I would analyze, you know, um, the, you know the Soviet Union's ballistic missile movements or, you know, Libyan submarine movements before they lost all their submarines. Um, you know, I view it with a, with a broad depth of experience and I cross-reference it with what I'm seeing from open source information. I've seen coup d'etats happen in many parts of the world. I've seen them form. I've seen the communications pathways that they use. And I've seen tanks roll out in the street. Right? I didn't see that here, but I saw something completely different. I saw an entire administration organize to overthrow 245 years of democracy. And it was obvious, it was patent, and they are, now we're finding out, it's all true. Malcolm, this is the last question uh, for the evening, and it is, how do your children feel about your joining the effort in Ukraine? Oh, okay. Well, if if those of you who have been to the Commonwealth Club the last two times, um, you'll, you'll remember my daughter, uh, Nadia, who is a, a, a cute, wispish, little blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who looks just like me. <laughs> no, she has the mouth of a sailor, I swear to God. <laughs> but, and she talks like me sometimes, and it scares me. You know, I go, whoa, you are my child. 
But more importantly, some of you might remember my wife from my first time that I spoke at the Commonwealth Club. And she sat right here in the front row. And I made the unfortunate joke uh, where I said, I am willing to risk my house, my home, my land, my treasure, and my family. And in that little pause, (laughs) she said, what's that? (laughs) And I said, okay, not my family. (laughs) And, 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 And the next time I spoke when we were at the Marine Corps, um, uh, club, uh, the, the host kindly reminded me of that and my late wife, uh, who passed from ovarian cancer the next year. And I said, you know, when I come to the Commonwealth club and I look at this, you know, there's an empty space where she would be sitting right now. Um, I really feel kinship based on those words. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about my family, look, my daughter does not like the idea I'm in Ukraine, but you know, she's like, well, you do have 10 years of tactical military equipment from contracts in Libya and Syria. You know, why don't you ship all that over? And I did. I shipped, you know, dozens of pieces of equipment, body armor, just tens of thousands of dollars worth of gear that was left over from wars. And, you know, when I finally said, hey, I can't live with myself if I don't go help my friends. I can't live with myself if I don't contribute in this effort. And, uh, you know, Another thing that people ask me is, they go, well, what does your wife think about that? And I said, my wife is in my ear all the time. All of us, any one of us who's a widow or a widower knows what I'm talking about. They are always talking to us. They never stop talking. (laughs) They're always giving us advice. Half the time, it's us remembering advice. The other half of the time, they are talking to us. And I said this when I was on the battlefront and I was being bombarded one day. And we were in a vehicle and we were moving and mortars were exploding all around us. And, you know, I thought to myself, if Marie's were here, if she ever manifests herself and goes, Malcolm, it's time to go home. I would say, all right, taking off my body armor, taking off my helmet, time to go home. Right. You you always pay attention to the warnings from the other side. Okay, my wife hasn't said a word. My wife understands that there is great, grievous suffering in Ukraine. Um, a, a friend of mine, Michael D'Antuono, is a, a, a great artist. He, he's a, he has this website, artandresponse.com. And he did a painting for me as two uh, Ukrainian Orthodox saints. And one is a woman named Alina, um, who is the first woman killed in combat. Mm-hmm. And she sits there in her uniform with her AK-47 in a, the golden. He literally gilded this painting. And she was, she was a mother of five. Her husband soon died in combat after her. But she was a member of the Ukrainian army. And next to her in her arms is Paulina, this young girl. They only know her as Paulina. She was killed in Mariupol with her mother, her father, and her brother. Slaughtered at a checkpoint just trying to get out of the city. You know, and they found this photograph of her. She's cute as you could possibly imagine. And I challenge all of you, all right, to, to, to do what I do. Find somewhere. You're going to see something horrible from Ukraine. For me, it was um, this, uh, this little boy that was being pulled out of the wreckage of the Mariupol drama theater. 
And that building had a thousand people in it. Only 300 survived, 700 dead. And they were pulling him out and putting him into the arms of the rescuers. And you can see he's dead. He's whole, but he's dead. His body is lifeless. And they hand him over to these two women paramedics. And they have to go through the motions of trying to resuscitate him. Mm. You know, they do the sternum rub and they start trying to rescue breathe for the child. And one of them starts crying. And you just think, she has to do this. She, She has hundreds of more dead people in this building. People must be held to account for this. These children cannot die. And I will not stand and sit on MSNBC and point to a map and say, well, the Russians attacked this city today. I have the skill. I have the resources. I can help. And that's what I did. I will not allow another child to die behind me. There's a saying that uh, soldiers don't fight for those. uh, They don't fight because they hate the people who are in front of them. And this is very true in Ukraine. For every member of the International Legion who has come from 56 countries, we fight for those we love behind us. And that's some of them are from Japan and Korea and Taiwan and France. Well, plenty of French, you know, but they are all there because they love that they can stop this horror. You know, on the other hand, do we have hatred of those in front of us? No, we have professional calm. You are going to be held to account in a way that may be lethal. You have an option. You can go home, as we said in the first Gulf War. You can walk north, or we're going to kill you. We are going to utterly destroy your force. We refer to them, by the way, as orcs. We don't call them soldiers. They're not soldiers. They're inhumane. There's a video of a Ukrainian army took on a drone, and there is a chest-high pile of dead Russian soldiers' bodies. And their comrades are sitting next to them with their feet next to them in pools of blood, eating their lunch. They just don't care about the humanity of the men there. And the Ukrainian drone operators going, what's wrong with them? What is wrong with them? They abandon their bodies all over the place. Mm-hmm. They don't, they have no humanity. And if they do, then we don't know where they've lost it. One guy's girlfriend told him, you can rape all the Ukrainian women you want. As long as you wear a condom, they deserve it. You pick what atrocity offends you the most in Ukraine. Go look through the, just wait a day, right? The little girl with, who was Down syndrome, who had been in the, 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 the um, first lady of Ukraine's Christmas video, obliterated. You can see her dead body when the Venezia shopping mall was hit. They hit every mall in the country, by the way, in most of eastern Ukraine. They just kill people because they're frustrated they're losing on the battlefield. So what do they do? They hit a shopping mall with a missile that's fired for that was designed to hit U.S. aircraft carriers. You are not soldiers. You are orcs. You are a force to be destroyed. And I will do my damnedest to destroy you and bring my country along to destroy you and rebalance the deaths and murders that you've done in that country. And that's why I fight. 
Malcolm Nance. Malcolm, I cannot tell you how honored I am to participate in this with you. Our thanks to you. Malcolm's book, of course, is They Want to Kill Americans. Thank you for being here tonight. And a reminder to all of you that Malcolm's new book is available for purchase here, or of course you can buy it at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to support the Commonwealth Club's ongoing efforts in making virtual and in-person programs possible, please go to the website. It's commonwealthclub.org. Thanks again, Malcolm. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, and good night. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening.